This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg in studio with Craig Blumenshine. Hello, Craig. Ashley, how are you today? I am well. Got a nice film review with Madeline coming up in the second half of today's show. One of those origin stories. Did you know how Willy Wonka got into making chocolate? I do not know. I, you know, I don't know either, but Matt does. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, today we'll open the show with my interview from the Fargo Public Library which is hosting its 8th annual Northern Narrative Writing Project, and that's open to writers from North Dakota and from Western Minnesota. Also, we'll hear about Northern Focus, kind of a sister program. It's a region-wide photography project. It's also hosted by the Fargo Public Library. Andy Gustafson, she's a lead in the Fargo Library Circulation Department. Welcome to Main Street. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, We are pleased that you are with us. This is the eighth year of the Northern Narratives Winter Writing Project hosted by the Fargo Public Library. We want to learn all about it. Tell me its history. Well, it started back in 2017, so as you said, it's going to be our eighth year. It started when a couple of our librarians wanted to think of ways that we could encourage creativity in the community, provide more opportunities for artists, and specifically writers. And so at at the beginning, there were just like about a dozen people interested. It had more of a workshop feel. People could write kind of whatever they wanted. And then they just published little zines, little magazines that people could just take for free, patrons of the library, whoever stopped in. But as our team at the library grew who wanted to work on this, that brought a lot of experience in things like writing and publishing, we really wanted to create a journal for the region that would provide more opportunity for people to have their voices heard. And so we have grown a lot over the years. This project is open to anyone in North Dakota and also a portion of Minnesota. Absolutely. The whole state of North Dakota is welcome to participate and also our friends in Minnesota in our reciprocal area, which is the the counties that the Lake Agassiz Regional Library covers. So if you're from Minnesota and interested and you live in the counties of Polk, Clearwater, Norman, Monoman, Clay, Becker, or Wilkin, or if you live in the city of Rossay, we are more than happy um, to have you participate with Northern Narratives. If I were to ask you how significant of a program this is for the library, the Northern Narratives, what would you tell me? I would say it's probably one of the crown jewels in our programming. It is a program that takes us all year to work on because we start with submissions at the beginning of the year. We go through, get those ready for judging. The judges have to go through all of it. We get it back. We have to tabulate the scores and then we have to actually build the book. This all culminates closer to the end of the year with a big reception where we invite people to read excerpts of their work. And at the same time, we have a parallel program called Northern Focus, which is for photography. For Northern Focus, so you can be from anywhere, but the photography has to be within North Dakota or Minnesota. What are the timelines for entry and categories too? Right now, submissions are open. We're taking them through March 31st of this year. If you live in North Dakota or that western area of Minnesota we discussed, and you're age 13 or older, so teens in addition to adults are welcome, you can be any experience level. Um, and we have categories in poetry, fiction, or nonfiction. So pretty much everything but script writing we're going to welcome here. Um, and we do have some word limits because we can only publish so much. So poems can only be up to a thousand words and fiction and nonfiction have to be between 1,000 and 6,000 words. What's been the most popular categories generally from year to year? It's usually poetry. Um, I think because usually they take a little less time to write, so people have more that they've done that they can choose from that they really love to give to us. Generally, the age groups that enter, would you tell me most are middle-aged folks, most are older folks, most are young people? Most are adults. Within the adults, there's a decent age spread, but we also like to reach out to our regional schools to get that younger voice in there too. We're going to have you read a couple excerpts from the Northern Narratives Project. Let's start with the first one. Tell me what you're going to read. 
Well, I'll start here with one of the fiction pieces that we published last year. It's a modern take on Hansel and Gretel. It's called Harry and Gale, and it's written by TJ Fear. And I'll read the first part to whet your appetite. The witch knew their arrival was inevitable. After hiding and thriving in the woods for centuries, the modern world reached the witch's front door in the guise of two somber men holding legal documents claiming the fatal words, eminent domain. As she did with most strangers, the witch hissed and frightened them away with her best butcher knife. At first, this appeared to work until the somber men returned with a sheriff, a gaggle of deputies, and a damp-eyed wisp of a woman that they called a social worker. A myriad of strange words and legal documents came with the motley crew. According to the heavily scented social worker, the local government intended to reroute the river outside her cottage, and she was in the way. Of course the witch put up a fight. How dare they try to remove her from her home? She had lived there since before most of them were born. She was just a little old lady. Couldn't they leave her in peace? And please stop touching her stuff, especially the knives. The people crowding her home gaped as if they had never seen a wood-burning stove, shelves of candy-making utensils, or hand-woven rugs made with children's hair. Oh, well, fortunately, they didn't look too closely at those rugs. I'll bet you have a wide array of subject matter to get through. <laughs> Absolutely. We really encourage any genre. Just like the library on our shelves, we will stock any kind of thing you might want to read, we want to leave that open and up to the writers. What do you think motivates people to write? People read all the time, but then there's the next step of actually wanting to write something. What do people tell you? Well, you're talking to someone who loves storytelling. So for me, it honestly goes back to what makes us human? If you can think back to before we actually literally wrote things down, what were we doing? We were sitting together around the fire and we were telling stories. We were making music with whatever was at hand. We were dancing. We were taking fruit juice and you know finger painting on the wall, right? Storytelling is part of what makes us who we are. Writing is one medium in which you can do that. And I think it's very important to provide people with an avenue to have their voice heard and have their stories told. Relative to Northern Focus, what kind of entries do you see? Northern Focus, we see absolutely everything. As long as it is in North Dakota, Minnesota. So we see, of course, because you have such beautiful landscape in these two states lots of nature but we also see things with people we see day we see night we see humor even you know people stuck in the snowbank or all sorts of things it's just it really runs the gamut of artistic expression can you give me an idea of maybe two or three of your favorite pictures that have come your way absolutely the reason northern narratives partners with northern focus is one picture is chosen to be the cover of Northern Narratives when we actually print the book. Last year's winner was called Yellow Jacket on Grape Leaf and it was taken by Jeffrey Westgart in his backyard in Dilworth, Minnesota. It is a big close-up of a yellow jacket on a grape leaf, but very strikingly. That yellow jacket is maybe, what, six inches tall there, at least in, in the photograph, it appears? It, it appears huge, and even more so because it has just decapitated a fly. We know that it's about to chow down and have some brunch. Is that the eye of a fly I'm seeing? I wonder what I'm seeing there that he's just about ready. Oh, he's got the fly in yep. his... He's got the body of the fly... Oh my goodness. ...right up against his mandibles, and then the head of the fly is sitting next to him on the leaf. We we were all so shocked when we saw it. We could not get it out of our heads. And when we sent all the photos off to the judges, they must have felt the same way because they came back and they're like, no other but this can be the cover. I have never seen a photo like that. I exactly. Can say. And it was in his backyard. It was in his backyard. Now, Northern Focus is for either up and coming or recreational photographers. So we do say you have to make less than 50% of your income with photography. But as you can tell, it, you don't have to be professional to take an amazing photo. That is an amazing picture. A couple more examples of great photos you've happened to recall? 
Yes, absolutely. So I'm thinking of um, some of our previous covers. So in 2022, the cover was called Milky Way and Meteor, taken by Gordon Court. And it was a landscape photo, so it's the front and the back cover all together. And it was a long exposure, so you can see the Milky Way. You see a meteor coming in just at the top. It's out in the country, a hay bale. You could not feel more like the region. You just feel odd looking at it. And then in 2021, we had um, a cover called Wild Horses, and it's this beautiful spread fog in the background of wild horses over in Western North Dakota. Beautiful. Once a library receives submissions for uh, Northern narratives, or even the submissions that are made for Northern Focus, what happens to them? And then what does a writer retain relative to his, his work. So for both Northern Narratives and Northern Focus, when we receive submissions, they basically get processed, randomly assigned numbers, make sure we have our spreadsheets so everything is, information is kept correctly. But we basically randomize and anonymize them. So when we send them to the judges, they literally get no information about who created the work at all. So as unbiased as possible when looking at the pieces. And so when they score them, we can be confident that it was based on merit and not on anything else. So for Northern Narratives, it functions under first rights copyright. Once we publish your work, all copyright is retained by the writer. We are not proprietary at all. All we ask is that if you do get it published somewhere else, it comes with the attribution that it was first published with the Fargo Public Library in Northern Narratives. For Northern Focus, it's very similar. You retain the copyright to your photo. We just reserve the right for if we're gonna advertise Northern Focus another year or we're gonna advertise a program at the library, we just retain the right to be able to use your photograph as part of that advertisement. But we don't make money off of their work. When we publish the Northern Narrative books, they are sold at cost. And this is because this program, because it does cost money to publish real books, because these are real books, published. We are supported by the Friends of the Fargo Public Library. Every year we've been doing this project, they've very generous, generously given us the money to print these books and also to print the photos of Northern Focus because we put them up in a free gallery at our downtown library and we would not be able to do it without their support. They're the nonprofit mm -hmm. um, we have locally to support the Fargo Public Library. Really enjoying our conversation with Andy Gustafson. She's the lead in the Fargo Library Circulation Department. Does it cost to enter either, either one of the programs? That's one of the major things that's wonderful about this. A lot of journals you see around, they will charge money for you to submit because that's how they keep afloat and make money to print. But because we have that support from Friends of the Fargo Public Library, everything is free to you at every point in the process. You have a poem, I think, that you would like to read for us, Andy, and you also indicated earlier that poetry is the most popular genre, if you will, of work that people submit to you. It absolutely is, and we see all kinds of poetry, so don't be shy in sending it in. The one I chose for you guys today is called Wild Moon, and it's by Carla Smart Morstead. Poets say, grow more fur and dream of licking stones and bark. And so I shoulder house cats, breathe furred hips, sniff their paws, their moist tartared yawns. Sometimes we are just alike, sharing quilted sleep, relishing processed food. My felines craft play and teach its rhythm and purpose. They take ample rest, and we are so much the same, until the moon fattens herself and they journey into wild, pine walls, changing voices, dismissing drowsiness, pursuing a certain satisfying anxiety I do not know. What is it to be a cat or coyote or timber wolf, to be eagle or wind? I want to know water thousands of feet deep. Let me be uprooted trees and burgeoning fern. I want to lap rainwater and leaves. Let me be rock-crusted land, soft earth, ground knotted with roots. I will circle and trample prairie grass before sleep. Let me slit the sky. I want to be lightning or frozen rain or sunrise. 
Teach me to transform, to know November from inside wind, to know the unmoving wild silence of August air. I claim the odor of singed fur, the death motion of eagle and salmon, talon locked, rolling under while surging skyward. Then come nights when the moon peels her own bright knowledges. My clawless creatures, released, stretch and moan at dawn. They pat pouches of catnip and taste my toes while I, in dark coffee contentment, search newsprint for word of the world. We are kin again. I serve bites of cheese and praise my spirit teachers, awaiting wild moon. Do you want a cat? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Neither do I. But I love animals. Are there prizes? There are prizes per se. There is the way that you do get a free copy of the Northern Narratives book if you are published within it for Northern Focus. Everybody's photo gets put up in our gallery, but there is a cover contest winner who is the front cover of Northern Narratives, and we will have several honorable mentions. And the cover contest winner and the honorable mentions will have their own little booklet published of their photographs. Andy, I briefed you off mic that um, I would ask you this question, and I've wondered about it in context of, of what you may start to see now from people being submitted. AI. I can ask AI to write anything. Is that a concern that you may start seeing some things that maybe weren't legitimately written by author who submitted it? It is a concern, of course. I mean, it's all we've been talking about for a year, it feels. The whole world's been talking about it. We did update our rules to say that you cannot use a large language model, what might colloquially be called an AI, to write even a portion at any point of your work, because this is a project to celebrate the work of writers. Large language models is taking a bunch of other people's written work, often without any compensation, and it's called large language model because it's based on probability. So what you're gonna get is like a very milk toast kind of doesn't really have any thought or emotion behind it, kind of very flat prose or poem that really, if you read it, doesn't actually read like something an artist would do. So I would encourage you, if you are thinking of doing it, that it's not worth it and you will have much more fun making your voice the one that is on the page. And to honor the honor system here. Honor the honor system. I mean, we our judges do have backgrounds in things like writing, teaching, editing, publishing. So, you know, they're going to recognize good work when they see it. And generally speaking, I, AI is not good work. What would you tell someone who is, ah, I've written some things, I don't know if it's really good enough or that I'm good enough to submit? What would you tell them? I would say you've got to submit. One of the great things that Northern Narratives does is gives people an opportunity to see their work published, yes, but an opportunity to go through the motions of what is it like to put myself out there? Could I continue doing this for other journals, for other opportunities? Is there the possibility that we won't publish your work? Yes, there is that possibility. But if you go through it, then you know what it feels like and you know how to prepare yourself the next time. I know someone who even, who sent their work out to journals all over the country and they literally wallpapered their office with their rejection notes. <laughs> I wouldn't want to look at those every day. It's not necessarily that your work isn't good, it's just like, did what you put on the page speak to the people judging and scoring? Because there's always a subjective piece of art, and that subjective piece is, is my soul speaking to your soul? Tell me a couple of other programs that the library has that our listeners should know about. Absolutely. We have crafts going all the time for all age groups, so keep an eye out for all of those. We have story times and baby rhyme times for kids every week. One of the programs I'm really looking forward to in April is the new North Dakota Poet Laureate, Denise Lajamadir, is coming to talk about her kids' book, Josie Dances, because North Dakota is sending that book to the National Book Festival to represent our state. Lastly, Andy, there may be someone who is listening who went to the library maybe as a kid but has never come back. What would you tell that person? How would you invite them to see how libraries maybe are different today and what libraries can offer? 
Libraries really offer so much today. Of course, we always want to offer all different kinds of books that you need, but we also offer lots of technology. We have free Wi-Fi, we have free computers to use, we have mobile hotspots you can get on the waiting list for. In addition to books, we have things like movies. We have board games, which are so expensive to buy, but so fun to play. We have video games. We have so many programs like we've talked about. And one of the things that's really cool is that when you walk into any of our three locations, you really see a great cross-section of the community. People from all walks of life and from all neighborhoods and all interests come to the library because it's one of the great bastions of our community. I certainly agree with that. One more time, the entry deadlines for both Northern Narratives and also Northern Focus. So Northern Narratives is open now and will be accepting online submissions only until March 31st of this year. And so you'll want to go to fargolibrary.org to look for that. Once Northern Narratives closes at the end of March, 1st of April, we'll be accepting submissions for Northern Focus, and that will go through the end of May. So two months for both programs. And again, anyone from North Dakota or a good portion of Western Minnesota, they're all eligible to enter both, yep. both programs. Ages 13 and up, and then anyone's eligible to submit to Northern Focus as long as the photo itself was taken within North Dakota or Minnesota. Andy Gustafson, she's one of the leads in the Fargo Library's Circulation Department. Thanks for joining us on Main Street. Thanks so much for inviting me. Libraries, of course, wonderful places for lovers of words. And speaking of word lovers, Tom Ezern has a Plains Folk essay, The Garden of Yesterday. It seems I had to travel to Winnipeg to discover, in the inventory of a favorite bookstore, that there is a new biography of Larry McMurtry our late great American novelist, written by a chap named Tracy Doherty. This life is an absorbing read for me, but not always a comfortable one, as so much of the narrative knife cuts to the bone. It is a literary trope of the prairies, grounded in real experiences, that authors of the Great Plains have ambivalent relationships with their home country, a boy from northwest Texas, but one cognizant of the larger region comprising the Red Rivers of North and South, McMurtry said, I like looking straight up to the guts of the Great Plains. So now I feel like he's looking right at me. Yet Doherty says McMurtry, the author, had an aching need to fill the hollowness of his raising. Well, I'm ambivalent about all this ambivalence. Yet I do not suffer the deep disquietude of James W. Foley, the man often referred to as North Dakota's first unofficial poet laureate. Like McMurtry, Foley experienced a boyhood divided between his father, who hobnobbed with Teddy Roosevelt in the Badlands, and his mother, who stayed in Bismarck, where Foley graduated from Bismarck High School in 1888. Also like McMurtry, Foley perceived himself in the midst of a great transition on the Great Plains that would change life in this place forever. He struggled with this change. I'll give you three markers of his struggle. First, his 1906 poem, A Letter Home, wherein a lad in North Dakota pens a letter to his father back east somewhere to declare that he will never come home again, that he has cast his lot with the freedom of the West. Foley writes, it's so broad and boundless, and its heaven is so blue, and the metal of its people always rings so clear and true. We should note that this most popular of Foley's poems was composed on commission for the Fargo Forum, which was publishing an addition to encourage immigration to North Dakota. Still, the context of Foley's other work tells me that at this time, his affection for the Plains was honest and heartfelt. Second marker, another poem, The Passing of the Prairie, which you can find in Foley's book, Tales of the Trail, 1913. Here, his love of country remains, but its object is a lost world. Perhaps Foley feels himself complicit in the erasure of his frontier world by the mass immigration of the Second Dakota boom. He writes, They have stuck it full of fence posts. They have girdled it with wire they have shamed it and profaned it with an automobile tire. 
1912, Foley pulled up stakes and moved himself to Pasadena, California. In 1926, when the Business Women's Club of Grand Forks declared the 4th of February Foley Day to be celebrated with readings and honors for the great man, Foley was a no-show. In the meantime, though, he wrote another poem, The Garden of Yesterday, which you can find in still another of his collections, The Voices of Song, 1916. I consider this to be Foley's master work. He knows his world is gone. He cannot go back. For time is keeper of the way. The garden there is yesterday. Forgive me now for a hopelessly obscure allusion, but Foley's keeper of the garden is a dead ringer for the angel of history, sketched by the tragic philosopher of history, Walter Benjamin, an author whom I first encountered through Larry McMurtry's essay, Walter Benjamin at the Dairy Queen. Dr. Tom Ezern is a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. Still to come on Main Street, our news discussion with Dave Thompson. That's after this. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical discussions about everyday life. The question why is very empowering. It's about the divine, it's about the moral, it's about the pleasurable, it's about fear. Why is everything? I'm not very good with authority and I'm not very good with limits. And so I like a question that gives me the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I was born and raised in Manhattan on the edge of a neighborhood that most people would know as Spanish Harlem. I ended up in North Dakota because they offered me a job. It's that simple. And we've had a very good life here so far. Dispel these myths. Philosophy is boring. I guess I would ask you to ask yourself, are you boring? Do you think you have nothing of interest to offer anybody? You are philosophy. Philosophy is you. Everything you ask, everything you think, everything you want, everything you strive for, this is what makes up philosophy. Philosophy itself is compelling enough and exciting enough that it is pretty much the oldest discipline. And philosophers had more influence on the world than almost anybody. Plato, Aristotle, we live in their world. And so if you want to make philosophy exciting, you have to be exciting. Philosophy majors can't get jobs or make any money. Philosophy is the highest paid major of all of the humanities, and the rate of return is actually the same over a lifetime as engineering. Listen to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life every second Sunday at 5 p.m. Central, 4 Mountain, on Prairie Public. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein, pleased to again be joined by our news director, Dave Thompson. Dave, welcome back to Main Street. It's my pleasure, Craig. Dave, a presidential disaster declaration has been approved for damage from the Christmas ice storm. What do you know about that? Well, I know that they asked for it because there was a lot of power lines, power poles down, some infrastructure damage from that major ice storm we had from Christmas Day through the 27th. The governor asked for it and the Biden administration has said yes, and that will unlock some FEMA money and to get you know, some of these power poles, power lines, things like that repaired. This was expected, Dave, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Normally, yeah, you see the administration and FEMA working to you know, get relief money when places like North Dakota have undergone a blizzard or an ice storm that causes some damage. There are a lot of people said that's the worst ice storm we've had since 1997. 1997 was the year of the major Red River flood too. Dave, what's the office of good government? It's from the auditor's office, and they've set up a separate office of good government. It's kind of a training office for like local officials who have to deal with budgets, who have to deal with audits. And it was a result of a complaint that some local governments made against the auditor's office for you know coming down hard on them on audits. So the legislature stepped in and says, okay, let's get a training session together. Let's get training for these local officials on how to prepare for a proper audit. The idea is to try to short circuit any problems before they happen. Dave, this is a, I guess, an entity of government for smaller communities, smaller cities? If you have less than $2 million in incoming revenue, then you can go undergo the training. The theory is that if you're getting more than $2 million in incoming revenue from sources, you probably have a professional auditor on staff. All right, Dave, is there any update relative to carbon capture happening in North Dakota? It's such a big topic here. It is a big topic and a committee of the Industrial Commission, the Industrial Commission made up of the governor, the attorney general and the ag commissioner, a committee has picked potentially two 
firms to do an educational campaign about carbon capture in North Dakota. They're leaning toward a, a firm called AE2S, which is an engineering firm. Shall we say constraints on them are you're not to advocate for it, you're just to explain what this happens. But if you're going to do it, there's probably some advocacy in there. Certainly there must be. But it seems interesting to me that there is a need to provide this education. What's really behind that? Well, there's a lot of opposition to this carbon pipeline, not only because they're worried about the company. Summit Carbon Solutions is going to use eminent domain if, if they have some landowner disputes. But there is a pretty decent section of North Dakota that doesn't think it's needed. They don't believe in in climate change per se, and they don't believe that carbon dioxide is from power plants or from ethanol plants in this case is contributing to it. So there's a little bit of, shall we say, from their perspective, a learning curve. Keeping on the energy topic, Xcel Energy has granted a natural gas rate increase. Right. The Public Service Commission gave an interim rate increase, which under state law, if a utility files for a rate increase, a main case, they are entitled to interim rates. So the PSC has given them a rate increase, which will mean an extra $5.73 per month beginning in March for XL natural gas customers. I do want to point out that XL and MDU do not directly make money from the sale of gas. They make money by providing the infrastructure to get the gas from a pipeline to your home. This is going to be a very busy spring and summer for rate increases because MDU and XL and Otter Tail Power all have rate increase requests in front of the commission. So it's going to be a lot of interesting uh, stuff coming from the commission. It's been a nice winter relative to not having to use too much natural gas. I'll, I'll give That's the state that for sure. Dave, the governor has endorsed a candidate for um, his seat and he has endorsed Lieutenant Governor Tammy Miller. What do you know about that endorsement and does it surprise you at all? Well, it doesn't surprise me at all. Bergam picked Tammy Miller to replace Brent Sanford as lieutenant governor. When they rolled out the announcement and rolled out the ads, you had Bergam in the ad, you had Trump in the ad, you had Miller in the ad. So he endorsing Tammy Miller to me is really not surprising at all. But yeah, he, he's got the endorsement. So will this help? That's another good question. Is it going to help her campaign? Now, Tammy Miller is going to be one of those candidates who is not going to the convention. She's going directly to the primary. Same thing that Governor Burgum did when he ran against Wayne Stengem for the Republican nomination for governor when he first ran. He skipped the convention and went directly to the primary and won the primary. I'm sure the party just hates that, Dave. Is that an accurate assumption I, I would, there? I would say it's an accurate assumption, especially because the party really wants to have the apparatus in place to get people involved in a convention setting and have that kind of thing carry some gravitas. Well, with first Senator Kevin Kramer, who was then person of the Public Service Commission, and he was going to run for Congress, and he skipped the convention and went to the primary directly. It's kind of devalued the value of the convention to an extent. I'm not going to say it's completely devalued because a lot of things happen at a convention. But if you have people who are saying, oh, the heck with it, I'm going to go on to the primary. Well, there's some interesting dynamics here in the Republican Party that are, that are going to be interesting to watch. Now, uh, Craig, just do a little history for you. Not the first time there has been some issues about conventions. When John Hoven ran for governor the first time, he was accused of packing the convention with delegates who supported him, which, mm. which is perfectly legal. That happens. When Rick Becker challenged John Hoven, he darn near took the nomination away from John Hoven at the convention. And the comment was is that he got his people out to run for the convention in their local district conventions and they choose the delegates to the state convention. A long explanation of it's going to be interesting in the first weekend in April to watch the convention. Dave, let me ask you before we move on, has the role of Lieutenant Governor Miller changed in your eyes since Governor Burgum first decided that he wasn't going to seek re-election and then he entered the presidential race? It has to an extent. I mean, she's doing a lot of the more ceremonial things right now, like, for example, pardoning the Thanksgiving turkey. She did an event that was going to be a, a health-related thing at the Capitol yesterday. She's taking over some of those roles, and the governor is actually going to be in Washington, D.C. for a national governor's meeting. So she will be, you know, doing a lot of that as well. 
Let's move along, Dave. The North Dakota University System faculty have received AI scholarships. And this was a story that Danielle Webster, one of Prairie Public's news reporters, talked about. She did, and it's amazing and very interesting, but it tells you how the university system and how classroom instructors are trying to deal with the AI revolution. A lot of concerns saying that, well, maybe students are going to use AI to write term papers or something like that. Or, you know, is there a way to use AI in a general classroom type setting and for education? So these are these are coming at the right time. The university system is fairly, fairly forward thinking on this because it's had a task force looking at AI. And of course, you've got the governor, Governor Burgum, talking about AI is great when it's used properly. Just to tease a segment we have coming up on Main Street next week, we interviewed the incoming Dean of the Education College at the University of North Dakota, Shelby Witte, and ah. she describes herself as a techie. And we talked quite a bit about AI and its influence on how teachers are trained and how teachers may use AI in the classroom. So that'll be a fun discussion for our listeners to look forward to. I'll be looking forward to that myself because I still, you know, I'm an old guy, so AI scares me a little bit. But then again, maybe maybe we should just embrace it and use it properly. You are using it and you don't even know it. How about that's that, right. Dave? There you are, yes. <laughs> Air travel is up in the state and that's kind of a big deal. It is a big deal because you remember back in the days of COVID, I mean, our air travel out of North Dakota, like it was everywhere, it was way down. So North Dakota has gotten back now to where it was pre-COVID and we're seeing a lot more pent up demand for travel, not mm. only among people who are going on vacation, but also business and government travel. We're seeing that pick up. And one thing I found interesting, Delta would be the number one uh, airline serving North Dakota. You know who's number two? Allegiant. Allegiant. That surprised That's, yeah. me. But again, vacation destinations and Allegiant's doing that. And we, you know, even though it isn't that cold in North Dakota, people do want to go, get on their winter vacations. So you see that. I think that'll start uh, ratcheting back as we get into a summer type thing. So. Dave, oil production is creeping up in North Dakota, just under 1.3 million barrels per day. What's the feeling about that? Well, the feeling about that is that we're going to eventually get back. We were at 1.3 million at one point. As a matter of fact, the highest was 1.5 million barrels a day. And then people started ratcheting back. And then again, that was kind of COVID related. They couldn't get workers to do the frack crews or, or to operate the drilling rigs. Now we're seeing that recover a little bit. North Dakota started the year at just 1 million barrels a day. So it's been, it's been moving up, up, up slowly. Mineral Resources had hoped that it would be 1.3 at the end of the year. It's not quite there yet, but they think probably in the first quarter of 2024, it's going to get back to that 1.3 million barrel. And of course, there's a big milestone coming up in oil drilling. The five billionth barrel will be extracted sometime this spring. That's a lot of oil, Dave. It is a lot of oil. <laughs> but hugely important, obviously, to the state of North Dakota. Dave, we have some candidates for Congress that we want to talk about. That's correct. The latest one to jump in is uh, Public Service Commissioner Julie Fedorchek. And she jumped in in kind of a more old-fashioned type announcement. A I like that. Right. Are, a lot of candidates, yeah, a lot of candidates are announcing via email, via Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, or just by press release. But she actually had a rally at the GOP headquarters in Bismarck and then answered reporters' questions, which, of course, I'm a reporter. I appreciate that. She's got kind of a challenge because, you know, there are two other candidates running. You've got Rick Becker, former state representative from Bismarck. He will be running as a Republican. He cannot run in the convention because he ran as an independent for another office, but he can be a, on the primary ballot as a Republican. And then you've got a former state senator, Tom Campbell, of the north, northeastern part of the state. He's running as well. That is going to be one to watch. But, Craig, I've got to tell you, I ran into something interesting. There's a group called Wallet Hub that does a lot of surveys of things. They surveyed the property tax burden in the states. And do you know where North Dakota ranks? You know, Dave, I'm going to guess high. And that's from a guy who came from Wyoming. But maybe that's not the case. That's not the case because the property tax in North Dakota is 30th among the states, huh. which I find very interesting. And I'm, I'm waiting for some more information from Wallet Hub, how they found that out and 
what what metrics are used in the survey? Is there a difference between residential property or commercial property? There's a lot of things that may go into that 30th ranking. My wife and my perspective is that property taxes are significantly higher here. So maybe it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of concern and complaint about property taxes and you understand why. Dave, you were on a media panel for Leadership Bismarck Mandan, something that you've done before. What'd you talk about? We talked about the role of media in the community. It was part of their Leadership Bismarck Mandan thing that the chamber always, every year, hosts about 25 people who want to become leaders in, leaders in the Bismarck Mandan area. So we had a chance. I was on a panel with the Bismarck Tribune, with North Dakota Monitor, and with KX News in Bismarck. And we all talked about our roles in keeping the people informed. And it's interesting, you think there might be a lot of or some anti-media backlash, but no, they were just kind of interested to hear what we had to say, how we do our jobs, and some of the things that we have and standards to make sure that we're doing the right thing, we're fact-checking, et cetera. I love this because I like to lift the curtain on what we do. I, I really enjoy that. I love talking to people. And then you get the person who comes to you after the presentation said, I'm 35 years old. I've been listening to you all my life. I believe that, Dave. What's your team working on here in the coming days? Well, as uh, other than the Wallet Hub thing, there's going to be more preparation about how candidates are going to prepare for a convention and what the dynamics are in the little district conventions. We've seen some of that already. I think we're also going to be doing more on the CO2 issue because I think more is coming out on that. Dave Thompson, he joins us each week to review the news. Dave, thanks for joining us on Main Street. You are very welcome, Craig. Madeline reviews Wonka. Stay with us. I'm Ira Plato. On Science Friday, we wonder about the secrets of nature and meet the scientists finding the keys to the universe, like Black Hole Maven Jan 11. I think it's really important as a scientist not to put a belief system first. The whole point is to explore the unknown. Come explore with us. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday. Listen every Friday evening at 7 Central, 6 Mountain on Prairie Public. When you hear the fanfare, that means it's time to go off to the movies with our resident movie reviewer, Matt O'Lean. Matt, the, I don't know, is this a sequel? Is this a prequel? Is this in the franchise of Willy Wonka, the new Wonka film? It's an origin story. So it's the third Wonka film, you know, 1971, the famous Gene Wilder film that I saw as a kid anyway. And then the ill-fated Tim Burton, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in 2005 with one of the strangest performances in movie history Johnny Depp pulled off as, as Willy Wonka. And now Timothy Chalamet takes the role in an origin story of how he became a chocolatier. So it's directed by Paul King, who directed the two Paddington movies, which are really good. If people have not seen the Paddington movies, they're they're hilarious and wonderful. And so Paul King infuses kind of this funny, exuberant, style that he used so well in the Paddington movies to this film. Neil Hannon writes the song, so it is a musical, and I think some people are confused by that when they see Wonka. And it's kind of one of these movies, Ashley, that it's kind of a musical and kind of not a musical. It's not a full-blooded musical because there's not a ton of songs in it. So it's one of these one foot in the water, one foot out, where it's like The Greatest Showman was kind of. Like it's not a full-blooded musical like Oliver or West Side Story. And I think that's maybe an issue for people. But it's a $600 million worldwide hit. This is really uh, done well at the box office. I liked it a little better than I thought I was going to, Ashley. Not sure if we need a Wonka origin story. (laughs) Origin stories are all the rage now in movies, and I blame George Lucas for The Phantom Menace back in 1999, which was the original kind of origin story that started this off, and of course it was a horrible movie, The (laughs) Phantom Menace was. This is better, and I think the songs aren't great. There's a couple good numbers. The Scrub Scrub song early in the movie is the one I like the best. Chalamet's singing is mm, average, middling, I would say. He's not a trained singer, but he gives his, his all as Wonka. So this Wonka is really not the Gene Wilder we see later. This is not the kind of creepy, kind of borderline sadistic Willy Wonka that we see in that movie. He's very 
um, effervescent and full of life and wants to sell chocolates in this new town that he arrives in, but he's, he's met with a lot of resistance from the local uh, already established chocolatiers. So he plays him much more as kind of this wide-eyed innocent who wants to feed the world. And we'll see if there's a second film, which kind of maybe explores a little more of the more uh, teaching kids a lesson <laughs> that, that we get with Gene Wilder. So liked it to a degree. It's not as good as the Paddington movies, but it's making a lot of money. And let me say too, Ashley, I think what makes this too is the supporting cast. Jim Carter from Downton Abbey fame. Keegan-Michael Key is hilarious as the police inspector. Sally Hawkins plays Wonka's mother. Uh, Hugh Grant plays an Oompa Loompa. Rowan Atkinson is in this. Olivia Colman. Uh, Calla Lane plays the little girl Noodle, who kind of helps Wonka with his business and get things started. She's very good as well. So the supporting cast uh, really does a good job. But I would say this. A friend of mine who saw it said to me, she said, the music could be here or not here. It would be the same movie. And so she had kind of the same opinion that it's not really a full-blooded musical mm-hmm. and you could take the songs out and it would kind of be the same movie. So that was my only kind of drawback there a little bit. There is one song that they sing that is from the original 1971 movie. I won't tell you what that is, but the rest are all original songs by Neil Hannon. No one's ever going to get this confused with West Side Story, Oliver, or My Fair Lady, songs that we can all hum to this day. It's not yeah. going to be that kind I mean, of a I guess big that, deal yeah, with there the was music. That. Oompa, loompa, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that's in there. But sure, it's sure. not in this movie, but that's in the original movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I would say Chalamet, who's a huge film star right mm-hmm. now, and Dune Part Two comes out in two weeks. Ashley, he's going to be in that too. Wow. He's, he's uh, everything he's in kind of you know turns to gold at this point. Having some moments. And at six hundred yeah. million worldwide, I I expect a second Wonka movie from this with with Timothy Chalamet. I would not be surprised. So it is funny in parts. There's a giraffe scene that's hilarious. Yes, Timothy Chalamet milks a giraffe in this movie. <laughs> You'll have to go okay. see to see what I'm talking about. Um, but the supporting cast is good. The production design is really good. And I would give it a tentative thumbs up to go see it if people have not seen it yet. Okay. Well, Chalamet is the third youngest person to get an acting nominee at age 22. Mm-hmm. The youngest nominee for actor ever. Jackie Cooper in Skippy, 1931. At age nine, yes. held the he's <laughs> held he's still holding this record here. Nobody's beat that. Held the record for 92 yes, years. Uh, quite a theme for that film, as there was somebody who held uh, a record there for 86 years as the youngest to be nominated in what. So you're, the question is, who held a record for 86 years to be the num- youngest nominated in which categories? So, yeah. So we're yeah. talking a different category than best Different category, actor. but same film. Oh, in Skippy. Um, wow. In the movie Skippy, someone held a record for 86 years and the youngest? I don't know. The director. Norman Tarog? Yep. Was replaced in 2017 by... Uh, was that Damien Chazelle it for La La Land? La La right. Land. Yep. We've been to the movies with Matt Olin. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. This is Dakota Datebook for February 22nd. On June 25th and 26th, 1876, the Battle of the Little Bighorn took place along the Little Bighorn River in Montana Territory. Known to the Plains Indians as the Battle of the Greasy Grass, it is widely remembered as Custer's Last Stand. The 7th Cavalry Regiment under Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer faced the combined forces of several tribes, including Lakota Sioux, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho. The only survivor of the regiment on Last Stand Hill was Captain Keough's horse, Comanche, but the 7th Cavalry troops in other portions of the battlefield did survive. 
Major Marcus Reno had launched an attack on the Indian village there with three companies, but when his small force was about to be overwhelmed, he ordered a retreat to bluffs overlooking the river. Captain Frederick Benteen joined Reno with three companies and the pack train. They remained under heavy fire throughout the night. John Sauer of Rockford, North Dakota, was serving in Benteen's command. Sauer told of how the soldiers on what is known today as Reno Hill could hear gunfire and knew Custer was under attack, but were unable to go to his aid. He talked of how the troops suffered from lack of water. Sauer was among a small group who risked fire to retrieve the wounded man. It was for this act that Sauer was awarded the Medal of Honor. On this date in 1916, the Devil's Lake newspaper reported that although survivors of Little Bighorn had been promised a Medal of Honor and a bonus of $2 per month, Sauer was among those who still had not received the award 40 years after the battle. When Senator Hansborough learned of this, he promised to look into it, and a few months later, when Sauer went to a commemoration of the battle, he was wearing the Medal of Honor he was finally given. As for the heroic acts among the Indians in the battle, their stories are not as widely published. However, a 2018 biography does shed some light. The book is titled Song of Dewey Beard, Last Survivor of the Little Bighorn. It chronicles the remarkable life of Dewey Beard, a Lakota who witnessed the battle as a child and survived the Wounded Knee Massacre 24 years later. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Dr. Carol Butcher. For Merrill Pepcorn, I'm Bill Thomas. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota. That's it for this Thursday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on The Middle, how is it possible that just a few states have voted and already both major political parties feel they have their presidential nominees? The Middle ponders the question, is it time to change the way we nominate our presidential candidates? And actually coming up next on All Things Considered, looking forward to hearing the scientists just learned that Myanmar is home to the largest population of endangered species of ape Mm. thanks to her love songs. Hear how the Star Wars named Skywalker Givens (laughs) and her passionate duets led to this discovery. Fascinating. We'll be back again on Monday right here on Main Street, and we hope to see you then.